hppodcraft.com. Such great powers or beings, there may be conceivably a survival. A survival of a hugely remote period when consciousness was manifested perhaps in shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity. Forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and called them gods, monsters, mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday, the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein. We shall either go mad from the revelation, or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. That's a great beginning. <laughs> that is a great beginning. That was, of course, the opening quote from H.P. Lovecraft's signature piece of fiction, The Call of Cthulhu. That was read by Andrew Lehman, who is also joining us as a guest today. Hello there. This is a first time. Yeah, weird. A guest and reader at the same time. <laughs> that is efficiency. <laughs> yeah, because I made such a fuss. <laughs> uh, I, of course, am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm uh, Chris Lackey. And you are joining us at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. Andrew uh, directed the 2005 film of the same name. Yes, yes oh, I did. Which is... Uh, which uh, starred Chad Pfeiffer. Uh-huh, that's right. As as well as you, you're in it as well. I, I do have a few few minor parts. <laughs> well, you've got a very major part. Uh, uh, certainly, a memorable one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, I should also mention that our uh, some of our music today is going to be provided by Reber Clark from his film The Lovecraft Paragraphs, and uh, the soundtrack to that film is available on Amazon.com. I also just wanted to mention here at the top that we've just entered a partnership with Stitcher. What is Stitcher? Stitcher is a service that you can get podcasts and all sorts of audio content on your mobile phone. Oh. So we'll put a link up to that in the show notes. But if you want to listen to us on the go, you can you can now do that. <laughs> perhaps while perhaps while fleeing into the peace and safety of a new dark age. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so so before we do get into that awesome paragraph, that opening quote uh, or the epigraph that we heard at the beginning there was read by Heather Klinky, and that was a quotation from the writer Algernon Blackwood. Who who is this guy, and and what do you think the significance of this quote is? Algernon Blackwood is an uh, English uh, story writer. He's best known for uh, The Willows, which uh, Lovecraft thinks is the best weird fiction story ever written. Yeah, I mean Lovecraft <laughs> really liked this guy, and The Wendigo yeah. is another uh, story of his that's very famous. You know, unfortunately Blackwood he was familiar with Lovecraft's work, and he was not as much of an admirer <laughs> he had said he had told um peter uh, penzolt that he found spiritual terror missing in his young admirer's writing something mm-hmm. he considered all important in his own and uh that's that's too bad because i think he's wrong <laughs> yeah especially as evidenced by this story do we know whether or not lovecraft knew of blackwood's opinion i don't think he knew 
Yeah. I don't think. I he hope did. he didn't. Yeah, that would have probably not it made. Sucks when your sucks when your mentors disapprove of you. Right. <laughs> it really hurts. Yeah. Um. But Blackwood, he lived until fifty one. Nineteen fifty one is when he died. Yeah. In fact, I think uh, he even used to do radio productions of his own stories. At some point. Yeah, I did. He also, I think, he believed that human beings possess latent psychic powers. He actually believed that. So it's interesting that quote would be the opening of this story, which. Hmm has some sort of psychic uh, stuff going on in it. So that's uh, that's Blackwood. Let's talk about that opening paragraph a bit. It's the most famous of Lovecraft's passages. Absolutely. It was uh, it was quoted in Bartlett's famous quotations in 1980 in that publication. Really? Okay. Good for them. Well, yeah. so what does it capture? I mean, why is it so interested? Why is it so well stated a passage? Well, it certainly sums up a, a key part of, of Lovecraft's whole, you know, the whole Cthulhu mythos is sort of introduced and summed up in that one paragraph. The idea that if we were capable of perceiving everything that was around us we would all go mad or run away screaming um, <laughs> right. you know which is sort of the underpinning of, of a great amount of Lovecraft's fiction and uh, you know one of those deep suspicions that we, we all occasionally have from time to time <laughs> yeah. uh, about the world that we live in absolutely yeah absolutely <laughs> I think it's uh, yeah it just in that paragraph kind of s- surmises the theme of Lovecraft's work in general like, I think it's all in there you know every every one of his stories ties into that in one way or another and we've seen him kind of cover the this ground before but maybe just not stated so artfully another thing that i love about that particular paragraph is the the almost conversational tone of it that little i think thrown in at the very beginning you know there's something about you know lovecraft is is often you know famous for the affectation that's not quite the right word that i'm looking for but you know the sort of stilted formality of a lot of what he writes in this particular paragraph has a sort of a guy who has seen it and been through it relating it in a much more understandable and emotionally accessible way i think i agree and and uh, i think that we find that kind of muscularity of prose actually in the whole piece which is yeah. what sets it apart it's not purple it's not overstated it's not overwrought it's a very clean story and, yeah. and a lot of not a lot of time is wasted yeah absolutely actually above the epigraph it says uh, found among the papers of the late francis whalen thurston of boston so right. does that imply that this entire story is a discovery yeah i, I hmm. think it does uh, that original that subtitle wasn't a subtitle at first it was a footnote that w- when it was in weird tales but it wasn't ever republished again it was just called the call of cthulhu and then uh joe i think it was in it was like the dunwich horror and other tales uh, in 1981, and that's when it was first put back into the story. Francis Wayland Thurston was actually a real guy. He was the fourth president of Brown University, and he lived uh, from 1796 to 1865. So there you go. So Lovecraft borrowed that name. Do you from... think he meant to imply that the real Francis Wayland Thurston? No, no. I think he it's just, just lifted the name, the name. because uh, obviously the character didn't die in 1865. Right. Right. Yeah, because this story takes place in 19... I know. I know when it takes place, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that introduces something interesting because this is a story with a lot of levels in it and stories within stories within stories. Yeah, right. It's a very nested structure and that Mm -hmm. first layer, the the found among the papers of the late Francis Whalen Thurston is the sort of overarching frame for all of the other layers that will come in. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that we're discovering this, which is about yeah. a guy who discovers something, which is about his yeah. uncle who discovers something. something. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like what's a, so a, cool about that that sub that subtitle is that you become part of the story in a sense. It certainly makes the reader complicit in yeah. what is about to follow, and puts the reader himself or herself in the same jeopardy that all the other characters are in. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. we might really uh, get hurt because uh, yeah. we read the story. Yeah, <laughs> everyone who everyone who's ever found this. 
stuff yeah. has regretted it. Yeah, that's right. And might, might now get, it's your turn. <laughs> be careful when you're hanging around wharves and docks. Well, let's talk about this chapter. The horror in clay. Our narrator, after opening with that paragraph, he goes on to say that theosophists have hinted at the cosmic grandeur of the world, and I, I don't know what that is. What's a it's theosophist? the idea that there's kind of a spiritual hierarchy. All the different religions of the world have a, a piece of the puzzle, and that if you can find all those right pieces and put them together, that you will ascend to some level of uh, higher being. So right. they would they would suggest that putting all the pieces together is a good thing, whereas yeah. Lovecraft comes to <laughs> yes. the conclusion that putting all the pieces together is a terrible idea. Don't do it's it. A, right. It's a bad, horrible yeah. thing. And, and this narrator says, well, it wasn't the theosophists, it wasn't their work that gave me a glimpse into the forbidden eons of Earth's history, mm -hmm. even though that's what they talk about. It was actually a correlation of information that he pieced together from an old newspaper item, a certain piece of art, and the notes of an old professor, which kind of leads us into the inciting incident of the whole tale. The narrator's great, his great uncle, was George Gamble Angel, who's a professor of Semitic languages at Brown. There's some significance to that name as well, right? Well, Angel was the street that, one of the streets that Lovecraft grew up on. So it's a nod, it's a nod to his upbringing in Providence. And he does that a lot, and, and uh, yet another nod to Brown University. You know, and Brown has this extensive collection of, uh, of Lovecraft's work now in his original manuscript. I was actually talking to, you know, Matt Barisi, who was on our show for The Street. He's been talking with some of the people who curate that collection over there, and he said they had, uh, Lovecraft had written some of his, his drafts of his fiction on circulars that he'd gotten in the mail because he was too poor at the time to afford paper. Ugh. So, you know, he was doing his fiction there writing. There was, I don't know if you guys caught it, but several months ago, maybe even as much as a year ago, there was a, an auction on eBay of uh, a collection of Lovecraft's letters, uh -huh. handwritten letters. And many of them were written on the backs of circulars and stuff that he got in the mail because apparently rather yeah. than go out and buy stationery or blank sheets of paper, he would just use paper that came to him anyway. Mm. And I, I lost oh, wow. that auction. I broke oh. my heart. But, <laughs> but um, it was hundreds, maybe not hundreds. It was a lot of original Lovecraft wow. letters and written on the backs of other letters. I mean, it would have mm. been for somebody like me who, you know, really is into that ephemera and vintage printed right, stuff. It yeah. was a double treasure trove because on one side it was Lovecraft's handwriting. On the other side it was awesome old stationery from all kinds of other places. <laughs> wow. Do you, do you know, how much did it go for, finally? Like thousands. I forget how many thousands of dollars. But, mm. but somebody swooped in and snuck it out from under us. Oh, well. Jerks. Well, in the winter of 1926-1927, Professor Angel, he dies at the age of 92, having been jostled by a nautical-looking Negro... Uh, when he's on the docks, which I thought, you know, yeah. wouldn't that be a great name for a clothing line? Nautical-looking Negro? Yeah. I'm picturing a Pierre and Gilles <laughs> photo shoot of some kind with just one crystalline tear. <laughs> I just, when I heard that, I, for some reason, I picture a black guy with a monocle and dressed up like Thurston Howell III. <laughs> <laughs> well, this guy, he bumped into Professor Angel, and it was almost like the professor got shivved. You know, I yeah. mean, he, he bumped into him, but nobody could find anything in particular wrong with him. Yeah. And they just assumed he kind of died because of his age and from walking too fast up a, a hill. So our narrator, he becomes responsible for the man's papers and his junk. Because he was a childless widower, so he had no one to deal with his estate. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So the narrator, he goes through the professor's papers and he finds this locked box, uh, which I believe is now available through the HPLHS website, strangely <laughs> uh, enough. <laughs> one version of it is, in fact, available. It's, yeah. We can talk about that later <laughs> in the shameless plug section. We yes. can talk about it, that. It, it's an amazing prop, and I, everybody should go look, go to the website and check it out, and then buy it because it's one of the coolest things that's ever been made. It's the whole story in the. I mean, it is 
it is the box that Francis Whalen Thurston finds, and and you by unlocking it, you have the very experience that Francis Whalen Thurston has. It's in your hands now. It's listeners. in your hands now. That's right. He opens this box, uh, and in it he finds a number of scrolls. Well, actually, he has to find a key to it first, doesn't he? Right. The key was not among... He had to go hunt on uh, the professor's personal key ring. I don't know how Lovecraft managed his keys, but apparently he had a lot of different key rings. Mm -hmm. And uh, so did Professor Angel. And it was only on his personal key ring that he found the mysterious key that would open (laughs) the Pandora's box full of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And he he opens it up. In it is a number of uh, scrawled notes and newspaper clippings, as well as a bas-relief, which is, that's like a classical pop-up book, really, right? I mean, it's a, it's a little sculpture <laughs> with a, a... A bas-relief is, is, a, is a, it's a sculptural uh, piece that's done in fairly low relief, so the overall profile of it is more or less flat. But, you know, but it's like a coin or a medal. All those things are bas-relief. It's a low-relief sculpture. This bas-relief is pretty strange, and our narrator is pretty sure that the writing and inscriptions on it are of some ancient origin. He goes on to say, Above these apparent hieroglyphics was a figure of evidently pictorial intent, though its impressionistic execution forbade a very clear idea of its nature. It seemed to be a sort of monster, or symbol representing a monster, of a form which only a diseased fancy could conceive. If I say that my somewhat extravagant imagination yielded simultaneous pictures of an octopus, a dragon, and a human caricature, I shall not be unfaithful to the spirit thing. A pulpy, tentacled head surmounted a grotesque and scaly body with rudimentary wings. But it was the general outline of the whole which made it most shockingly frightful. Behind the figure was a vague suggestion of a cyclopean architectural background. So we're six paragraphs into the story, and boom, we're in business. There oh, it is. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the main document in this box is labeled Cthulhu Cult. So we should take a moment here to talk pronunciation. It's something that comes up in the... Uh, yeah, this is the first time Cthulhu has uh, ever been brought up in all of Lovecraft's work. Right. Really? This story is the first time it's ever been brought up? This is oh, it. What about the name of the town where he lives? Oh, oh, right. Uh, that's also... Has Rulia uh, been yeah, brought up before? Some people say... Rulia? Rulia. Yeah, I've heard some... There's Rulia... Eurelia, Relay, Relea. Yeah, well, I say Relay, I don't know. Lovecraft is pretty inconsistent with the way that he uh, says Cthulhu uh, is pronounced. Some people say Cthulhu, mm-hmm. Cthulhu, uh, all those things. But I have an, a quote here that I would like to read, if you guys don't mind, yep. from uh, Lovecraft, Lovecraft himself. And he says about Cthulhu, The word is supposed to represent a fumbling human attempt to catch the phonetics of an absolutely non-human word. The name of the hellish entity was invented by beings whose vocal cords were not like man's. Hence, it has no relation to the human speech equipment. The actual sound, as nearly as human organs could imitate it, or human letters can record it, may be taken as something like Cthulhu. <laughs> very good, very good. With the first syllable pronounced gutturally and very thickly, the U is about like that in full, the word full, and the first syllable is not unlike Kalu in sound since the H represents a guttural thickness. And that was from some so letter that he'd written or Yes, that was from specifically it's it's in his it was published in his selected letters and he wrote this letter in 1935. So he he was inconsistent about how he thought it pronounced but basically it really doesn't matter because his point is that it's not meant to be pronounced It's by not human. a right. It's not a human word and yeah. right. You know, everybody just does the best they can. I would be really annoyed <laughs> if everybody who talked about Cthulhu would go Cthulhu. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that would be excellent. It, it sort of reminds me of when, you know, a newscaster 
will say a word with a really thick Spanish accent that's a, a Spanish word, and it just jumps out at you. Or Alex Trebek does that on Jeopardy all the time. <laughs> right. Yes, it's totally yeah. when Alex Trebek does that. Oh, it drives me crazy. Like, and the next category will be Costa Rica. <laughs> In this uh, sort of Cthulhu cult trapper keeper that he finds in the, in the box there. I just pictured a, a unicorn on the cover of it, too. <laughs> that would be great if it had a big unicorn shooting through a rainbow and um, all kinds of sparklies. Well, there's, there's two main sections. And one says 1925, Dream and Dream Work of H.A. Wilcox, uh, who's in Rhode Island, Providence. And the second part is Narrative of Inspector John R. Legrasse of New Orleans, um, Notes on Same, and Professor Webb's account. So, you know, one belongs to this guy Wilcox, one belongs to these guys Legrasse and Webb. And the rest of the writings in the folder are just accounts of dreams that people have given. Um, there's some notes about secret cults and some outbreak of group folly or mania in the spring of 1925. Yeah, and all the things that he mentions in this are are, are actual real things. The Atlantis and Lost Lemuria is a, was a real right. book, and... Uh, so was Miss Murray's witch cult in Western Europe, which he actually, you know, mentions has used a lot in, in his writings. Lovecraft has. Uh, so, I mean, we get that the spring of 1925 is some very significant time. And uh, and so first, our narrator, he digs into this uh, account about Wilcox. It appears that on March 1st, 1925, a thin, dark young man of neurotic and excited aspect had called upon Professor Angel bearing the singular clay bar relief, which was then exceedingly damp and fresh. His card bore the name of Henry Anthony Wilcox. So Wilcox, he's this sculptor from this excellent family, um, but he's so odd that he's kind of dismissed by people, social circles, and even the Providence Art right. Club. He often called himself psychically hypersensitive. Right. <laughs> Although the, uh, the, the citizens of the town just called him queer. Yes. <laughs> Poor Wilcox. Got very little respect. Yeah. So he's shown up this day because Professor Angel is this well-known archaeologist, and he wants to get his take on the bas-relief. But, you know, the professor says, hey, man, this thing is new. Damn it, I'm an archaeologist, not an art critic. But, uh, <laughs> but Wilcox says to him, and I, yeah, I'll do this. It is new indeed. For I made it last night in a dream of strange cities, and dreams are older than brooding Tyre or the contemplative Sphinx or garden-girdled Babylon. Huh? That was very... Yeah, see? He is kind of um, freaky and queer, isn't he? <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you put it that way, I get what people are saying. Wow, that's what was missing from your performance, was you actually saying it. Yeah, see, you shouldn't have made it a silent movie, Andrew, if I'd have been able to deliver those lines. Uh, the lines you actually delivered were equally delightful. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so the, uh, <laughs> the professor is thinking, uh, well, this is a bit off when he says that. And then Wilcox starts telling him about all of these crazy dreams that he's been having. There had been an earthquake the night before, a big one, and, and Wilcox had had a dream. Now, I wanted to say about the earthquake is that, you know how you were saying, or Chris was saying that all that stuff, witch cult in Western Europe and Atlantis and Lost Newark, all that was real? Well, so was that earthquake. When I was doing um, research when we were making the movie and I had to do the prop newspaper cuttings, I went and looked through old newspapers of, you know, from March of 1925 and discovered, much to my surprise and alarm, oh, no. that that earthquake actually did happen exactly when Lovecraft says it did. Really? There really was an earthquake yeah. in New England yeah. on the date in the story. Oh yeah, he wrote. He mentioned it in one in his uh, commonplace book. It was February twenty eighth, nineteen twenty five, and he said, uh, "I think it woke him up at three a.m. Yeah. when he was living in Brooklyn." So when we did the when we did the prop clipping about that in the in the movie, it is simply a replica of the actual front page of the New York Times from that day. That is wow. so cool. And and ever <laughs> since then, 
what I I wanted to put at the beginning of the movie based on a true story because <laughs> because that earthquake did actually happen, <laughs> and that um, therefore makes everything else that happens exactly. True. So yeah. it, it it always tickled me that 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 earthquake that which sounds so improbable because you know I when I think earthquakes I don't usually think New England I right. I think of other places. Uh, well, this earthquake the night before had sort of coincided with this dream that Wilcox had. He had had an unprecedented dream of great cyclopean cities of titan blocks and sky-flung monoliths all dripping with green ooze and sinister with latent horror. Hieroglyphics had covered the walls and pillars and from some undetermined point below had come a voice that was not a voice. A chaotic sensation which only fancy could transmute into sound, but which he attempted to render by the almost unpronounceable jumble of letters, Cthulhu Photogen. And this is what Wilcox had dreamt before he woke up and actually carved this bas relief. Right, in a, in a, in a yeah. frenzy of creative in- inspiration, he wakes right. up from this very disturbing dream, grabs a lump of clay, and the bas-relief in his hands is the result of that, including all the weird inscriptions in a language that people think, gee, that looks like language, but nobody knows what it says. Yes, exactly. And when he says the words Cthulhu Photogen, that really grabs the professor's attention. He's yeah. no longer kind of writing Wilcox off. He becomes um, really interested seems, in it. Yeah. Well, it seems to be connected to something else he yeah, knows about. Because he's heard yeah. that before. Yeah. And, and it's funny here, he questions Wilcox repeatedly if, now, are you in a cult? <laughs> um, or do you, you know, do you know anything about a cult? And Wilcox just keeps going, no, no. It's like one of my favorite scenes in the whole story because I just imagine it's like, no, it, it's cool. You can tell me. You're in a cult, right? No, I'm not in a cult. It's like, I'm no, it's tell a anybody. dream. I'm just having yeah. dreams. Why Why do you keep saying I'm in a cult? I don't know what you're talking about. Right. I, no, but it's cool, though. No, that's cool, yeah. dude. Tell me. You can tell me. It's cool. No, no. If you are, don't worry about yeah. it. But Seriously, I've me. been in cults before. It's not a big deal. Just before you came over, I was in a cult. <laughs> it's not a big deal. But he says, no, I'm not in any cult. I'm just having these crazy dreams. But it's clearly Professor Angel's very excited about this uh, because of whatever this is he's connecting to in, right. his, in his past. And so the professor asks Wilcox, hey, will you keep telling me about your dream? Right. Keep coming by and tell me what you're dreaming about. Keep a journal. Write keep it all down. Keep a journal, exactly. And, uh, which Wilcox does. He, over the next couple of weeks, he keeps coming over and he's having the same kind of dreams. He's, he keeps hearing that, that word Cthulhu and those words Cthulhu Photogen repeated over and over. Uh, and this goes on until March 23rd when Wilcox doesn't show up. He's supposed to – they have an appointment. Wilcox does not appear. Exactly. And so the professor goes out looking for him, and he learns that, that Wilcox has contracted this fever. Or he has the symptoms of a fever. His temperature actually isn't very high. But he's delirious, and he's been sort of ranting about these dreams he's having, and he's been dreaming of a thing that walks or, or lumbers about, a thing that's yeah. miles high. Yeah, it's pretty creepy. It's not good. I mean, he's, he's clearly had some kind of almost psychotic break. And, I mean, even by Wilcox standards. Right, exactly. <laughs> this, he's in trouble. Yeah, but Dr. Toby is there. He's making sure he's all Yeah, right. he's the Wilcox family physician, right? Yeah. And I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a bone to pick with you, Andrew. I, I want to know why he was cut out of the movie. Uh, yeah, really. Where was Dr. Toby in the <laughs> Dr. movie? Dr. Toby was such an important character. He added so much depth to the story. <laughs> On April 2nd, Wilcox suddenly gets better. He sits upright, and, you know, he doesn't really remember anything since he went into this sort of psychotic break. I mean, he not only doesn't remember the dreams from the fever period, he doesn't remember any of the dreams that he had already told Professor Angel about. It's as though none of it had ever happened. Exactly. And uh, when this happens, he's not dreaming anymore, no more visions. And at that point, the Professor Angel, he's of no further use. And and that and it says in the in the story uh, he's of no further use and that's how we ended that segment in the movie. Yeah. But in the story it says all traces of strange dreaming had vanished with his recovery 
and my uncle kept no record of his night thoughts after a week of pointless and irrelevant accounts of thoroughly usual visions. And I think that would have made a, a couple of really great scenes if Wilcox had just kept showing up, trying to convince the professor. And like, no, check it out. I had a dream. I had a cat head, but I was roller skating, and <laughs> Lillian Gish was there, but she was also my mom, which was weird. And my, and my mom doesn't even like movies, so she wouldn't even know who, you know, just on and on. And the professor's going, no, that's irrelevant. I don't care. But then yeah. he kept coming back. He'd go, yeah, I had this dream. I was in school, and, and I had to give a oral report and then I was naked and but he saw that he was losing he was losing an angel and so he goes and yeah. then I said Cthulhu photographer <laughs> <laughs> he's like no no Wilcox you are no longer of any use to me we should have done that oh well that's for the sequel yeah <laughs> the return of Henry Anthony Wilcox that's right ah oh, yes oh, Cthulhu calls back <laughs> <laughs> After this part, Thurston, the narrator, kind of doubts. He's like, well, this, you know, this artist is probably just a crazy artist coming up with stuff. I don't know if my uncle cared about it. But then he finds all these other clippings about all these other artists that were also having crazy dreams and things. Yeah, apparently the professor, he had found this significant enough that he'd sort of cast a wide net and asked a lot of different types of people. Can you tell me about your dreams during this period? And what you were thinking about and the regular kind of salt of the earth people yeah so he said salt of the earth yeah. they didn't really dream about much it was it was the artists and the poets like you said they, they were having um, crazy dreams and, uh, and in fact he says that panic would have broken loose if the artists and poets had been able to compare notes and I, immediately I thought thank god nobody organized an open mic night around that time <laughs> it would have been chaos <laughs> Uh, but th- but they're all dreaming oh, of the same dear. stuff. In fact, one guy, an architect, went violently insane on the same night that Wilcox had his seizure. Yeah. And he died as a result. There was a tale also, if I recall right, of a of an artist who had uh, painted a, a landscape or something. The that... painter named Ardois Bonneau yeah. hung the blasphemous dream landscape yes. in the Paris Spring Salon in 1926. And that almost precipitated a riot yeah, or something like yes. that. Yes. And insane asylums around that spring of 25 oh, are yes. breaking out. I, I, they're just crazy, huge... Uh, and there were there were voodoo cults in Haiti that were giving everybody mm-hmm. fits, and there mm-hmm. were hysterical yeah. Levantines right. uh, in New York City that were causing trouble for the police. Yeah, uh, there was a suicide in London, and oh, I love a Theosophist colony in California. Oh yes, of course. Uh, Don's white robes for some glorious fulfillment. It was like the total, it was the Heaven's Gate people yeah. and so forth, just waiting for Cthulhu to come down in a chariot of fire. And Yeah, all of these different clippings are showing that around that spring of 25, I mean, the world just seemed to be going nuts. And, but nobody was putting it together. Right. Uh, and again, with the prop research, when I was, you know, trying to come up with clippings for the for the movie, I went through to, you know, and looked through the actual newspapers from that month and found a lot of crazy shit going on. Um, yeah. And a lot of those, a lot of the clippings that we used as props in the movie are replicas of actual crazy news stories, including things like suicides and. Wow. And uh, there was this, there was a story of a guy who went berserk and killed his children in New York City with an iron bar. And whoa, yeah, there were a lot of crazy news stories, and I have no idea whether there were any more crazy stories in that particular month than there usually yeah. are in the New York Times. No doubt. If you if you really look, you'd find stories like that happening mm. all the time. Anyway, but it was. It was interesting to go through the real newspapers from the month that Lovecraft specifies and see all these crazy news stories going on. Yeah. It was like, wow, creepy. And th- this does have that air of apocalypse to it. Yeah. You know, that every year somebody thinks, well, the world is coming to an end. Look at the signs, right? Yeah. And the signs are always there. The signs are yeah, always if there. If you want to find them, you'll find them. This year in particular, mm-hmm. I, you know, all these earthquakes. It's like, is it me or are there more earthquakes than usual? I know. Natural disasters, earthquakes. Well, maybe yeah. the stars are almost right. Yeah. No. 
our protagonist, he's convinced, however, despite looking at all these things, he hasn't quite put it all together yet. At this point in the story, he thinks Wilcox might have been putting something over on his uncle. Um, yeah. or, or, you know, he maybe knew about this yeah. stuff and he was going. Yeah, he goes for the skeptic's rational explanation. This artist guy knew about this, knew my uncle would, and, you know, I don't know what he thought Wilcox's angle would have been, get money out of it or something. But Tease an old man. Tease an old man. You know those <laughs> artists. They always, they can't pass up an opportunity to tease an old man. But <laughs> They love teasing um, old men. And that's sort of where this, this first chapter ends. With him having discovered the stuff, but still being skeptical. So, so let's talk about a, a bit about this. You know, I, I think this chapter really it blows me away that that it shows a lot more maturity in Lovecraft's work, specifically in that it's so worldly um, and has this sort of scope of storytelling that it's kind of a brave thing to try to do. I mean, he's really covering an event that happens across the whole world, and he's choosing a very unique way to expose it to the reader. Um, there's lots of writers who who chose to tell horror stories through series of journal entries and letters and that sort of thing. But the way that he pe- kind of peels back the onion to the final you know, core discovery of this story, is, I think it shows a lot of maturity. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, So what was going on in his life at the time? Well, he had gone back to Providence. He's no longer in New York. He's moved in with his aunt. Obviously, he's separated from his wife and gotten away from New York, which you know he despised and hated and feared living in New York. It was, it was terrible for mm-hmm. me. Just, and now he's gone back home. But maybe being in New York gave him kind of a more yeah. worldly perspective, you know, that his, that his work needed. So lots of people cite all kinds of influences for this story. Yeah, they sure do. One that stands out is Guy de Maupassant's The Horla, which is about a vampire-like thing that preys on man. It comes from the water. It, it sends messages to people in their dreams. One thing I find interesting about that is when de Maupassant wrote that story, The Horla, he was pretty much insane by that Whoa. point himself. He had syphilis and he was kind of losing his mind. Hmm. Sort of like Lovecraft's father. So actually the, the primary story that they say that this is based off of was written by an insane Wow. Wow. Uh, It's cited that the novel of the Black Seal uh, by Arthur Machen is uh, uh, an influence. Um, But they also say that is an influence on uh, Whisper in Darkness, coincidentally. But there are a lot, you know, I mean, Lovecraft loved Machen and and no doubt a lot of those ideas filtered through a lot of Lovecraft's other stories. So I don't know if you can pin down specifically. You can't necessarily tie one specific thing to the other specific thing. Right. And I think that these are all just influences. Uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson had a poem called The Kraken, which uh, depicts like a giant octopus guy who is sleeping in the ocean. And one day he will, you know, come up and and, and kill everybody. And he's dreaming down there and all that. Is that later people noticing similarities and assuming that because they're similar, therefore they were influential? Or do we have have evidence from Lovecraft himself saying, oh, yeah, I love that Tennyson no. poem and I based my no, story. No, no, no. That's that's all. I, Robert Price was the guy that uh, pointed that one out. Right. Mm-hmm. But he's just noticing a similarity or he's yeah, he's, he's claiming there's some evidence. A, a sim, a simil- okay. Well, it says in Tennyson's poem, The Kraken, there hath he lain for ages and will lie, battening on huge sea worms in his sleep until the latter fire shall heat the deep. Then once by man and angels to be seen in roaring, he shall rise and on the surface die. That is definitely similar. Yeah. I'm not denying that there is a similarity. My it's only a, question is... <laughs> no, no, and I agree. <laughs> I mean, I think that, uh, look, I, you know, giant sea creatures, Yeah, it's is there, and it's as old as storytelling. Yeah, there have been oh, a lot. Yeah. You know. yeah, absolutely. But in Arthur Mackin's The Novel of the Black Seal, there there's a part where the guy is piecing together disassociated knowledge, and there's new, you know, newspaper clippings to reveal, you know, mm. some horrific... Uh, ancient thing and that was written in 1895 and you know as we said earlier at the beginning of the show this calls to mind a lot of lovecraft's previous writings and and i think that 
and one reason that a lot of people might see this as sort of a culmination of what he was doing is that it draws on a lot of themes from his previous yeah, it work. Sure does. It's a very extensive rewrite of Dagon. Yeah. I think that he's pulling in all of his influences and all of his previous work to kind of create this multi-layered piece of fiction. And yeah. you know, yeah, in, in the process, creating you know what we now recognize as these Lovecraftian archetypes. You know, the old professor and the crazy artist and right. you know as we'll see later you know the police captain and the sailor and all these other guys who are going to come into the story before it's done who are classic figures in lovecraftian it, it's sort of mind-blowing to me you know the story before this was cool air and before that was was he i believe yeah. right mm -hmm. yeah and and just how much better the story is his new york stories are pretty bad i felt uh lovecraft and pretty universally people don't care much for those cool air was was pretty good yeah. you know i like it and think it's an okay story but this is i mean in my opinion his best story period mm -hmm. like hands down it's it's so cool there's no waste at anything there's so many little flavors and bits and it's just i mean maybe i'm jumping the gun and talking about this too soon and we should <laughs> no, it's fine. You know, save this towards the end of the story but just reading this first section of it, it, it it's like something clicked in lovecraft's head and he just became amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know certainly i think it is the best uh, to to date that we've covered and the cool thing is is there's a lot of um there's a lot of suggestion in this first chapter yeah and i and i think that that's where we're going to end for today with a lot of the suggestion but as we get into the the next chapter which is called the tale of inspector Legrasse, we actually get laid out for us pretty mm. significant mythological things i oh, mean yeah, he yeah. really clearly goes through what will become in derleth's words the cthulhu mythos right? yeah absolutely and he's gonna you know start quoting from the book yeah absolutely <laughs> but we're gonna talk about that yeah. next week uh, i want to thank uh, uh reaver again for donating his music andrew of course for being our guest and doing our excellent readings today we got more of those coming up next week and with that i am chris Lyman. <laughs> i'm chad pfeiffer i'm andrew lehman and this has been the hp lovecraft literary podcast at hppodcraft.com <laughs> i wanted you to do it hppodcraft.com Thank you.